Welcome to the message podcast for Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to subscribe for updates and new episodes. You can also search for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. Make sure you join us each Sunday at 9 a.m. on Facebook Live. Our in-person service times are 9 and 10.30 a.m. We have a campus near Harrisonburg at 1871 Boyers Road and a new campus in East Rockingham at 414 Southeast Side Highway in Elkton. In addition, at our Harrisonburg campus, we have a Spanish campus that meets on Sundays at 11.45 a.m. Check out our website, cotnaz.org, for more information. Good morning, church family. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Happy Fourth of July. It's good to see you all here. Uh, As we continue our series this week, I have a question. Are there any NASCAR fans in the room? Oh, I see, I see some oh yeahs and some hands waving. All right. I figured there might be. I figured there might be. You know, for me, as watching a NASCAR race, what the most fascinating thing about this is, now it's not the continuous left turns, right? Because it's like, can we please have a right-hand turn somewhere? It's not that. But if you watch the pit crew, aren't those guys some serious athletes? If you can watch what that team, in that pit stop, you have these guys who can change four tires, deliver some 12 gallons of fuel, make adjustments to the car, and get them gone in 13 seconds flat. I'm tickled when Walmart can change my oil in a half hour flat, right? I mean, you feel me? These, these guys are so good. It's such a portrait of people operating as one, coming together in unity to accomplish a task. Now, we see unity in that team, but if you zoom out and you take a look at the stands, sports fans have unity, don't they? I mean, some of y'all will show up and you'll be in the dead of winter in Green Bay wearing a cheese hat and a yellow painted chest. Like, what is the matter with sports fans in some of these contexts? But there's this unity, this calling together And then there's uh, some of those Alabama fans that even have that secret roll-tide fist bump. Like, oh gosh, here it is. (laughs) I knew it. So you see a roll-tide and somebody will give a fist bump. And so we see that people of all walks of life, of all different calls and generations come together in the shared experience of a game. Of a game. You can see complete strangers will begin. They'll be sitting in their own seats and if the Redskins maybe would finally pull off a victory, they're weeping and hugging and shedding tears because we finally got a W on our season. But if there's that much unity among complete strangers for something as really insignificant as a game, how much more unity should we have as members of the body of Christ? It's a vitally important emphasis for us as Christians today. So welcome back, friends, to our series, What Now? We've been together in the book of Ephesians over the last several weeks, just looking and discerning from the Word to hear and to be able to articulate with clarity God's call for us as a gathering, a body of believers located at 414 South Eastside Highway in Elkton, Virginia. Last week, we looked at this idea that we belong to God, that we are products of His grace, and that His grace and mercy at work in our lives, we are a part of His family, we're a part of His handiwork. We understand that the action of God on our behalf should produce a response. And you'll remember, we looked at that response, that idea of a response to His gracious work is that He has prepared good works for us, that there are good things ahead of us that He desires for His people to do. And throughout this series, I think we're in week number four now, 
throughout this series, there's been a, a little subtle undercurrent, a prevailing concept maybe just under the surface of the text we've been reading. Sometimes behind the scenes, sometimes in the text, it's to the very forefront. And that undercurrent today, friends, is unity. What's sometimes subtle, sometimes behind the scenes so far in our study, is really a foundational truth that we need to grasp as God's people. It's unity. The reality that we are together in Christ just as the shared experience of a NASCAR race or a football game can bring millions of fans together, so the experience of God's grace and His mercy brings us together in unity, in community, and we are called to show the world, to show the world God's glory. We don't just say we are family. We are literally family when we are in Christ. We are called to unity. So what now? We're united. We are united. What has appeared in our study so far as an undercurrent or maybe an implied reality today must be understood as an essential element in the life of our church. For us to fulfill the intent of God for His church, we must do it together in unity. In God's economy, there is no plan B to unity. Simply put, if we don't go together, we won't go. So what now? We're united. Unity, if I admit, can kind of sometimes come across as a buzzword, can't it? We kind of sit back and think about, didn't I just hear a meeting at work about this? Well, I pray today, and we're going to open with a word of prayer, that today we will understand the importance and the elements of unity that Christ calls us to. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, as we come together in unity, Lord, we desire and we long to hear your heartbeat for unity, for us together as family, as being adopted into the family of God. Lord, will you open our hearts to your leading? May we form our lives to the truth of your scripture, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal with unity in the church? Why does it matter? If millions of people can come around something as insignificant as a sporting event, can't the church find unity in Christ? Jesus, in his final days of his ministry, his life here on earth, we read in John chapter 17, if you will turn with me there in your copy of Scripture, John 17, beginning in verse 20. Unity was such an important concept for Jesus, an idea, a truth, that he actually prayed that we would have it. Let's turn in our scriptures today and begin in verse 20 as we read, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Friends, that's us today. We believe in Christ because of the message of the gospel of the apostles, of the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then, then the world will know that you sent me and I have loved them even as you have loved me. This prayer recorded by John in the final hours of Jesus' life here on earth, before the crucifixion, you know what the central idea there is? 
what his central longing for us would be is that we would be one. Not just that we would come together as fans of Jesus, if you will, but that our unity would be found in him. For Jesus, unity is essential to the fulfillment of the purpose of God in the world. You hear the purpose language in this text, that the world may believe you have sent me. And on the other side of this, if Jesus is earnestly praying for his disciples, he knows he's about to bid them farewell. We can also maybe see the importance or why it's really important because there is an enemy to unity. It starts to come into view that the enemy of our souls doesn't want us to live in the unity that we find in Christ Jesus because unity is a key to God's mission here on earth. So what now? So what now? What, how do we go about it? We see that Jesus asked for it, that he longed for it. God desires it. How do we do it? What does it look like? So let's jump into our text today in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick back up in our study of Ephesians in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, just a sidebar today to today's text, and I'm going to be reading out of the NIV translation, but as you study, if you're sitting there with an ESV or an NLT, you're going to notice there's a lot of different nuance in the language used here. Um, So just note that I'm reading out of NIV, uh, and so that may explain a little bit of the difference if we have it in text. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. As we begin to unpack our text today, we should recall the context that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter there to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a church made up of many different multi-ethnic congregations, different people groups. You had God's people, the Jewish nation, were a part of this church, and then you had the Gentile nation, who anyone that was not part of God's uh, chosen people of Israel was considered Gentile. And so you have all these different traditions, all these different cultures smacked together in worshiping Jesus Christ as one. And that's who this letter is going to. That's the audience today that we're considering, that we're studying this text alongside with. So we're not reading this. It was not written to a group that had it all together, that all thought the same way, that all did the same things. No, this was a very diverse group of people that the Apostle Paul is addressing. And so as we jump into our text today, we'll need to keep that in the back of our minds. But he begins our text today with, As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Have you ever gone out to a real nice meal? You're celebrating a special occasion maybe, and you go to a nice restaurant, and you're not looking at the prices tonight, right? We're celebrating. You order that nice rare filet mignon and don't ever overcook it to fully done. You always eat filet mignon rare. So you hit that rare filet mignon and maybe you throw a crab cake on it for the surf and turf special and it's so good. You're savoring every morsel. And then the waitress or waiter comes around and says, would you like dessert? Yes, I would. As a matter of fact, I'll take peanut butter pie. And so you savor dessert, and that moment comes where you're just, oh, it's been such a great meal. And then they come and place that slip of paper on your table, don't they? And your jaw hits the floor because it's the first time you've seen how much it cost. But as you see that and you see what it cost, you reflect back and go, oh, it was so worth it. It was so worth it. That's the life the Apostle Paul is calling us to live. That when we look back, when Christ reflects on our life, he goes, it was so worth it. They lived 
They lived so well, it was worth it. Paul is urging believers to live a life worthy in this response, this idea of what's our response to God's grace and his mercy in our lives is we're to live worthy of that calling. And that's what you find in the book of Ephesians in chapters 1 through 3. And we switch here in chapter 4 to kind of practical living. And unity is his first exhortation in practical living to the body of believers there. He's urging, begging, that in the original language, the emphasis is on this urging that he's calling us along to walk like he walks as the Apostle Paul. As if to say, a high price was paid for you. Live like it. Live like it. He goes on in the text and he says, be completely humble and gentle. So after urging us forward, calling us along and urgently pleading that we would follow in his example, he says, be completely humble and gentle. This idea of being completely humble. Humility is that grace when you know you have it, you have lost it. So if I ask for a show of hands, who's humble and you raised your hand, we've lost it, right? That's the idea of humility. Humility literally translated here would be lowliness of mind. And that's in contrast to thinking highly of yourself, putting yourself on a pedestal above your peers. Humility is not self-degradation or putting yourself down. Really, humility is keeping a proper perspective of who you are before a holy and righteous God. Remembering what great grace has saved us will help to keep us humble. Jesus said of himself in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. So when Jesus needed words to describe his heart, what's he choose? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Being humble, therefore, is having the heart posture of Jesus. Think maybe today about the most humble person you know. What what words would you use to describe them today? When you interact with them, how do they make you feel? Are you a humble person today? Do those words describe you? He goes on and he says to be completely gentle. Gentleness here is the strength that accommodates to another's weakness. Gentleness is strength that accommodates to another's weakness. Gentleness is courtesy. It's kindness. It's being considerate. It's having a concern for others. The world would tell us or maybe even perceive gentleness as weakness, wouldn't it? The world says, I'll push you out of the way. I'll step on you to get what I want. And don't ever forget that nice guys finish last. Gentleness is a counterculture. It's a counterworldly idea. But in reality, it's a great strength. Gentleness involves the harnessing of our emotions, of the setting ourselves aside to come along someone else in their time of need or in their weakness. Quite plainly put, it means to be like Jesus. The emphasis here in this text is that we are to be completely humble, fully gentle with all, all of ourselves we're to give to humility and being gentle. This is not just giving it a good try and setting it aside when it doesn't go great. This is leveraging your entire life to be humble and gentle to lead like Jesus. He goes on to say, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Patient here literally means long-suffering. 
to uh, have a long temper, slow to anger. Have you ever talked to someone and they said, oh, I got a short fuse? You know what they're saying, right? Like, it's 4th of July. Be careful of the fireworks that have a short fuse. They'll blow up in your face, right? That's the opposite of patience. To be patient is to make room or to make allowance for someone else's shortcomings. David G. Allen says it this way. He says, patience is the calm acceptance that things can happen in a different order than the one you have in your mind. I'm going to need that this week. (laughs) Patience is the calm acceptance that things can happen in a different order than the one you have in your mind. This idea of bearing with one another in love, this is really an emphasis, a, a teasing out of what it means to be patient. Author Andrew T. Lincoln says it this way. He says, bearing with one another means fully accepting them in their uniqueness, including their weakness and faults, and allowing them worth and space. Friends, that'll preach. That'll preach. That we make room for people's uniqueness to include weakness, but yet we still give them worth and value and space. Within this very brief introduction, Paul has a very realistic view of the church, doesn't he? That there will be frustrations. There will be disagreements. And friends, I think from that very simple observation alone, we can take a few notes. Because I feel like a lot of times we approach the church and we're just set back and shocked that somebody had a disagreement, right? That's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, no, 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 no. You're all different. You're all coming from another space. There's going to be disagreements, but we've got to be united. Here's how we do it. Be humble, be gentle, bear with one another. That's a very realistic approach, a view of the church, if you will. So unity for our study today is not the absence of disagreement. It's not the absence of frustration. Rather, it's the commitment to love and charity through the disagreements and the frustrations. The absence of love today, friends, will always lead to a loss of unity. Our last point today may be the most significant. As Paul has gone on in the Scriptures, he says, Make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The unity that we have as a church, as Christians, is not something we're called to manufacture. It's something we're called to maintain. There's a difference. The default operating system of what we're given in Christ is unity. So if we are within the body of Christ and we hear words of division, we hear words of lifting ourselves up or putting our neighbor down, we know that's an intrusion into the kingdom of God. That's not of Him. It's an easy identifier. The default operating system of the kingdom of God is unity. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Our call today, friends, is to give ourselves to keeping the unity because it's up to each and every one of us to be patient, to be gentle, to bear with one another through those disagreements, through the misunderstandings. Unity's up to us. It deserves our utmost attention. When he's saying every effort, it's going to take work. Effort means that we have to put ourselves into it. We have to give ourselves to that work. It's not going to be something we sit back and it just passes by and we get to jump on. We have to give ourselves 
to see unity happen. This idea of through the bond of peace, peace can be thought of here as right relationships. Right, healthy, whole relationships within the body of Christ. What ties it all together, what binds it together, the glue of it all, if you will, is the peace, the bond of peace. In Paul's perspective, unity lies within each one of us. The responsibility to guard and to protect the God-given unity falls on each and every one of us. It falls on every conversation we have with one another. Every time we encounter a frustration or a disagreement, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But those are opportunities to give every effort to unity. Unity is a choice that we will have to make many, many times in the life of the church. Paul's calling us to make every effort. Give our all to promoting peace, to being humble and gentle with one another. Unity depends on you, and it depends on me. So what now? What's the big deal? If I'm honest... It's pretty easy for me to get into settings like this talking about what can be sometimes an abstract concept of like unity, and you just start glossing over, right? You start thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it time to go yet? I hope that person over there is really paying attention to this. Oh, they need it, preacher. I want to share a story with you today, a short YouTube clip of the importance of unity. What happens when just one or two people start to look after their own interest instead of looking after the greater good. What can happen? Would you watch with me this morning? Cincinnati, Ohio, Redland Field. It's October 1st, the opening game of the 1919 World Series. The Reds take on the Chicago White Sox in the first ever best of nine series. Sox manager Kid Gleason is confident. He calls on knuckleballer Eddie Seacott, who led the league in wins, to start game one. Seacott and other stars like left fielder Shoeless Joe Jackson are expected to power the Sox to the title. Gambling is illegal, but bookies have the Sox as seven to five favorites. Just hours before the first pitch, money pours in, picking the Reds to win. Crowds in New York's Times Square follow the game on a mechanical scoreboard, updated live by telegraph. White Sox fans are stunned as Seacott gives up five runs in the fourth including a triple to the Reds' pitcher. Cincinnati takes the game in a laugher, nine to one. In a stunning upset, they go on to win the series five games to three.
Sports writer Hugh Fullerton smells a rat. He suggests in the New York Evening World that White Sox players were fixing the World Series. A claim that casts a deep shadow on the national pastime. Shoeless Joe Jackson and seven other White Sox are accused of taking $5,000 each to throw the series. This Chicago grand jury, the first ever filmed, takes statements in September 1920 from the eight players. Three of them confess to throwing the series. All eight are charged with conspiring to defraud the public. Here, star pitcher Claude Lefty Williams, a surprising 0-3 in the series, arrives at the trial. The players get a mysterious break when the confessions go missing. The jury finds them not guilty. Baseball commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis is not so lenient. He punishes all eight with a lifetime ban. A hundred years later, we're still talking about a breakdown in unity. When a small group of people took their eyes off of playing for the team, and they started to think about the draw of a few thousand dollars, which sounds insignificant today, but it would have been a significant allure in that day. And they threw one of the most prestigious and highly sought-after titles in all of sports, the World Series. The scandal of 1919, of the Sox throwing the series and ruining the career of Shoeless Joe Jackson... One scandal tainted the reputation of baseball for an entire generation. One scandal. Just as one scandal in sports can ruin sports and the, the series for an entire generation, so one breakdown in unity within Christ's church can spoil the church for a generation. One of the greatest poisons of unity in the body of Christ is when believers succumb to the temptation to fend for themselves. Listen to what James says in chapter 3, verse 16. And I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation. He says, For wherever, anywhere you find it, wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find, not you might find, you will find disorder and evil of every kind. One author captured the importance of unity for all of us when he said this. He says, There is enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church and any other work of God. Did you catch the significance of that? There is enough of the flesh, there's enough of self-seeking ambition of the old way of life within each one of us to wreck, to destroy, to stop any local church and any other work of God. Unity matters, friends. Unity matters. It's within us. It's within our ability to respond. It's within our uh, responses that we have to put forth humility and gentleness and we have to bear with one another or we will succumb to a fracture. We will succumb to fending for ourselves. We have studied over and over within this series 
this summer that we are called to be a reflection of God's grace and His mercy, but if we fail at the point of unity, we will fail our call as the church, friends. And just as a couple players taking bribes ruined it for a generation, we have to be aware that we are within a community that has suffered church splits. And we're not going to get into all the history, and I'm not up here with any stones to throw at anyone, but we have to be aware that that has taken shape and that yet God has called us here in 2021 as a local body of believers. Friends, if we fail unity, if we start going after one another, putting ourselves first, we will fail the very call that God has called us here for. It will be for naught if we fail in unity. That's the importance of it. That's the reason we have to get our minds around this idea to understand the importance of unity. Our community is watching. As we are called to be a display of God's grace and His mercy, I can't display grace and mercy if I'm stabbing my brother John Lawson in the back. I can't do it. If I have harsh responses, if I start to whisper and say, boy, they're, they're really missing it. I cannot believe they painted those walls two-tone. There'll be a split, and that's the beginning of the end. Unity lies within each one of us. We're going to have disagreements. Relax, it's going to happen. Nobody says amen. (laughs) It's coming. Our call today is to understand who we are in Christ, to understand what's been given that we can be called sons and daughters of the King, and to just pause long enough to allow His grace to work between us. That we can come together in conversation and grace and love and work through it and maintain the unity of the Spirit. As the band comes today, you know, Jesus taught us a prayer. His disciples asked, Lord, how can we pray? And already in your mind, you're thinking through the words, right? We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really His prayer for us. It starts with unity. Our Father. Our Father. We're in it together. The foundational prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray starts with unity. We're in this together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, lifted high, exalted is the name of Christ Jesus, not Jared Link. Starts with unity. It continues in humility. Of an exalting of Jesus and a proper understanding of who we are in light of his grace. Will you commit today? Will you commit to giving yourself to the cause of Christ, to the cause of unity, knowing, knowing that within our community, within the context that surrounds us here, there's a community that needs to see a body of believers come together as one. They need to see God's grace and His mercy, not in the text, in our lives in our relationships with one another, even in our disagreements when they happen. Will you commit today? Will you commit to the cause of Christ? Will you give every effort to maintaining the unity in the Spirit? Not to manufacture, 
Because when we come in Christ, we are united. But will you give yourself to maintaining that unity? Would you pray with me today? Our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, Lord Jesus. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, Lord Jesus, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us this morning? Thank you so much for listening today. You can email us at info at cotnaz.org for any questions about our church. When you're done listening, please subscribe to this channel for the latest updates and new episodes.